Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. If you're anything like me, you often think about America's Next Top Model, Cycle 4, 8th episode, which was an episode where Tyra had the gals, you know, the seven contestants left appropriately, each represent one of the seven deadly sins. Pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth. This was a memorable photo shoot for multiple reasons, but if you recall, contestant Kaylin, her very close friend passed away, and the next day, Tyra had them doing the Seven Deadly Sins photo shoot, and Kaylin was made to pose in a grave while mourning her friend in less than 24 hours, where she represented, I believe, the sin of wrath and did a beautiful job and did win that particular contest coming, you know, in second place was Naima, who has been, you know, talking about the show lately on TikTok, which I appreciate, and she is still stunning. And yes, I did meet Kaylin from ANTM Cycle 4 the night I met my husband because she was bartending at that Lower East Side Country Western bar. And who knows if the high I felt that night was from meeting my future husband or meeting Kaylin from Cycle 4 of America's Next Top Model. To this day, I cannot discern which was a more thrilling event to happen. And I did make sure to tell her that I was sorry for what she endured on that difficult day with the Seven Deadly Sids. Anyway, so beyond that, I don't really think about the Seven Deadly Sins a lot. And what's crazier is I don't really think I understood something so huge about them, which is that they aren't even in the Bible. They're like adjacent to Christian teaching. I was reminded of this reading the book we're discussing today, which is such a good book. It's a New York Times bestseller. It was recommended to me by my sister-in-law. And then when I started talking about it, I realized everyone around me had read it but me. And it's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. I'm excited to have Elise Lunin on the podcast today. She was in the Netflix show that Goop produced. She used to be the chief content officer at Goop. She's ghostwritten like endless amounts of books. I talked to her about one particular cultural think piece that I'm sure she wasn't thrilled I harped on for 20 minutes. Beyond that, she recently wrote a bestseller called On Our Best Behavior. So this book weaves together history, memoir, and cultural criticism and explores the way patriarchy lands in the bodies of women and embeds itself in our consciousness and explores the self-denial implicit in each of the seven deadly sins. Sloth, envy, pride, gluttony, greed, lust, and anger. And kind of from the framework of this reading, like a checklist of what it means to be a good woman. And it was really enlightening reading this book because she, Elise explains, you know, for the longest time and throughout history, there wasn't religion and culture. You know how if you ever were in like youth group circles, they, they really villainized the culture as opposed to the gospel. But for a while, culture was religion. And the seven deadly sins became cliff's notes for how not to live. And there's something about these sins that women especially internalize in terms of like, you know, sloth and feeling lazy and not productive about feeling guilty that you're not gracious enough and you want for more. And if that's greed, she talks about reconciling envy with our own wanting. And like, is it a bad thing to want what other people have and to want that for yourself and to go for it? It's kind of reframing a lot of things we avoid to be a quote-unquote good person, and in many cases that honors, you know, how we appear to other people while completely denying our own needs, and there are implications of that. And the book talks about how women have been trained for goodness, and men have been trained for power. And I think about this often. I actually, the, what made me start thinking about this concept of what it means to be a good woman or a good girl um, was watching the Taylor Swift documentary, Miss Americana. I think she talks, she like opens with wanting to always be perceived as good. And I relate to that. Like, 
I've spent most of my life avoiding tension. I'm not rebellious by nature. I, I value being cooperative. TLDR, everyone knows I'm not trouble when I walk in, you know? I, I'm, I'm there to please. And it is kind of interesting because when you're young, your behavior is labeled as good or bad based on a set of rules that adults who know better than you have established. And it's like pretty straightforward, you know, do as you're told, don't talk back, cooperate with others, be polite, use your manners. For all the ways I, you know, I wasn't maybe a high performer academically or athletically or otherwise, my behavior was very within my control. And I valued the gold star of being a good girl very, very much, more than my instincts, for sure. And, you know, as I got older, I started to feel weird about the way my attachment to pleasantry at all costs was at best kind, but at worst deceiving, right? Like, is it really the right thing to do in every situation to prioritize being polite over being honest? And when does good behavior look more like being complicit with bad people if your core concept of what is good and right is to not ruffle feathers? And to be perceived as good just kind of meant, okay, don't piss people off. Don't be outspoken. Don't be difficult. Don't push back. But then you grow up and realize good is honoring your instincts. Good is doing the thing that stands up for people. Good is pushing back against the status quo and asking yourself with every experience how this can and should change you. And in recent years, I've kind of tailspun about this concept of what good means in other areas, you know, good at my job or, you know, be a good friend, be a good wife, be a good mom. And I noticed that even as far as I've evolved, I have a pattern of overriding my instincts to, uh, you know, identify what I should be doing to appear a certain way over and over and over instead of what I want to be doing. And I really do think that a lot of it ties back to this idea of, to quote today's guest, Elise Lunin, how we're programmed by our society and there's a difference in who we are and who we are told to be. And I really feel this, especially now with being a mom. You guys were there for the childless millennial of it all. What I wasn't really putting together at the time was like I didn't match the picture of what I thought a good mom should look like. All of these traits that I was programmed to believe, you know, were the ideal thing for somebody to be a candidate for motherhood and completely denying my own skills and gifts and interests and I've learned through experience now how misguided that was. And anyway, I think there's just a lot to be found in embracing the tension of the disconnect in who we are versus who we're told to be and kind of deconstructing the ways you were told to be that no longer serve you, that you resent because it's not what you want to be doing. Not in a self-help way to always be improving, but in like a go easier on yourself way because maybe a lot of what you're holding yourself to are expired beliefs you internalize that nobody's holding you to but yourself. It, like reading this book, a big lesson for me was that a lot of the things I do avoid kind of these seven deadly sins, whether it's like avoiding being lazy or avoiding being envious or whatever it is. Like the thing I'm dodging is just my own bad feelings. No one's really holding me to them. And that's why I think it's really interesting how she ties together patriarchy and the way we internalize these things that we do. And in your head, you're like, I'm being so bad. Think about how every time you like, you know, you've eaten something and you're like, oh, I'm being bad today. Like, no, you're not. It's just, these are the, I, I'm trying to, these are the things I think we need to de deprogram about ourselves. And this is why I obsess over like cultural and zeitgeisty ties to our behavior that I think is a key part of our nurturing um, and, and our tendencies that manifest well into adulthood. And I think she talks about in the book how there's power in acknowledging these tendencies um, because maybe you'll answer less to them. I thought one of the I thought 
the chapter about sloth was really interesting and just the origin of like productivity, not being lazy. I think it's a very millennial thing too, to always be optimizing, especially with like, you know, getting in the habit of like the gig economy and I can be doing like 12 things at once. And it made me have a lot of introspective thoughts about like tying my self-worth to my level of output and how that's been particularly challenging in this phase of life with a newborn. And like, even I was on the phone with some, someone the other day and I was saying I didn't have the bandwidth for something. And she was like, how crazy is it that we like refer to, our, refer to ourselves with machine terminology, the maximum rate of data transfer? Like that, that is how we view ourselves sometimes. Like we don't honor our own leisure, our own pleasure. To me, bandwidth is like not me saving room for other stuff. It's like me being at capacity at all times. And, you know, Obviously, here at this podcast, given that this is a form of leisure, you've been listening to it. I honor and value your leisure. I just hope, you know, while you're listening, if you're doing chores or multitasking or trying to do the most, just allow me to remind you to t- take a beat, take a chance, make a change, break away, and allow yourself to enjoy something, listen to something, do something, and just freaking relax. We don't relax enough. Anyway, I, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but for me, it was transformative to rethink what it means to be good and how that is tied to a lot of my decision-making and people-pleasing tendencies. And I really hope that you guys appreciate this conversation as well. Elise Lunin also has a podcast called Pulling the Thread, if you want to hear more from her. And her book, On Our Best Behavior, I thought was just, it was it was an excellent read that gave me a lot of things to reflect on, but not a lot of like cognitive labor or things I have to do moving forward that felt self-helpy. It was just like reflective in all the right ways where when you can put a name to something, when you have the vocabulary for something, sometimes it helps you answer to it less. And uh, I thought this was a really interesting, more cerebral angle of how culture shapes us, like going back to, you know, ancient religious origins when, like I said, you know, the culture was religion. Um, and a big theme of my book is how the culture shaped me of the, of the millennial zeitgeist. And I just, I could have these conversations all the live long day. And I hope you enjoy Elise as much as I did. I'm going to thank a couple of our sponsors making this week's episode possible, and then we'll get to the episode. Love ya. Speaking of ANTM, the closest I ever feel to being a top model, or, you know, like a chill off-duty model, my dream, is when I'm wearing Mark Fisher footwear. From ankle to over the knee, Mark Fisher footwear has all the boots for the holiday season. Solve the endless quest for what to wear in effortlessly casual boots and booties. Start with a pair of lug sole boots and build your outfit from the ground up. They have luxe leather and chic details to give an updated look to new Western boots. If you want to keep it edgy, they have moto boots adorned with harnesses and buckles to become your new go-to pair. Both Courtney and I are trying to dabble back into tall boots. It's kind of been a minute. And we tried the Lanny dress boot in black. It's got like an artful foldover in a way that is so chic. It's got a high heel, a soft point. It's still comfortable. It's a dream with dresses and skirts. I also got a pair of black slingback flats because I'm trying to get back into like a ballet-esque flat. I'm grateful to Mark Fisher Footwear for keeping me up to date with the trends, but giving me enough staples where I can rotate them season to season. And like our fearless leader once said, you know, never go out of style. Do you ever like get dressed and you're like, what shoes are we wearing these days? I think this constantly. And I just go to markfisherfootwear.com. And they've basically taken care of it for me by already predicting the trends and making gorgeous shoes at an affordable price point. Their boots are seriously to die. I mean, they have good shoes all around, but you guys will love this season. I don't know how long their Black Friday sale is going on, but I think it's 30% off site-wide. And like my code almost always stacks. 
And that's so that would be like 50% off. Just a heads. For understated luxury at its best this holiday, shop the must-have pairs of the season and receive 20% off your purchase with code BETHEREIN5 at markfisherfootwear.com. That's M-A-R-C-F-I-S-H-E-R footwear.com for 20% off with code BETHEREIN5. I know what you're all thinking. Kate, tell us about your latest pistachio pedestal routine. And I will. Thanks to Uncommon Goods. It's officially time to kickstart your holiday shopping, but there's no cause for panic. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for mom, dad, teenagers, in-laws, or your best friends, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. And what I appreciate is that when you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. And their products are often made in small batches, so it's important to shop early before they sell out. And they look for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade in the U.S., from art and jewelry to kitchen, home and bar. Uncommon Goods is something for everyone. As I mentioned, apparently every dad in America loves this pistachio pedestal because the men need some some place to put their shells. Typically, I'm rocking a bold lip at a holiday party. I'm not usually, you know, going straight for the shelled nuts. But if you aren't, this might be your solution. Yeah, so funny gifts like sheets where there's two separate blankets attached to it. You know, if your partner's a sheet stirrer, as I like to say. Also, since we're reading now, the Book Nook Reading Valet I think is so cute. It displays the cover outward on your nightstand with this like beautiful wood nook that has bought for your coffee and your glasses or whatever it may be. They have endless cute ornaments. Remember the episode Women in Stemware when I talked about how far too many people told me that they use the same bowl as like a puke bowl and a popcorn bowl? And I think women in our nation deserve better. They have a popcorn bowl with a sifter, you guys. It's a colander-inspired bottom of this glazed of, of a glazed stoneware bowl, and it filters out the unpopped popcorn kernels. I know we've all bitten on a rogue popcorn kernel, but not anymore. Not this year. Take back your power with the popcorn bowl with kernel sifter from Uncommon Goods, among countless other things. I like to filter by like the gifts that sold out last year: a smartphone-controlled paper airplane, a cocktail smoker, oh, a long-distance friendship lamp. Does it light up the same as the other person? That's really cute. Oh man, looks like the compact swivel cheese and tapas board sells out every year. I can attest, it's outstanding. Anyway, you guys get it, I'm a big fan. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash be there in five. That's uncommongoods.com slash be there in five for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods. We're all out of the ordinary. All right, everybody. Elise Lunin is a writer, editor, and host of podcast Pulling the Thread. And for today's purposes, she's also the author of the New York Times bestseller on our best behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, which weaves together history, memoir, and cultural criticism to explore the ways patriarchy lands in the bodies of women and embeds itself in our consciousness and explores the self-denial implicit in each of the seven deadly sins. Sloth, envy, pride, gluttony, greed, lust, anger. And they read like a checklist of what it means to be a good woman. And I'm so excited to have her with me today to discuss this brilliant book. Please welcome Elise Lunin to the Be There in Five podcast. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here with you. You know what the ultimate book recommendation is? Is um, My sister-in-law was reading your book and she just sent me a photo of the cover and then the mind blown emoji. And I, I thought I was like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Got to pick this up immediately. <laughs> I love it. Can I have that as a blurb? <laughs> it's, it, this book is so, so good. And I want to get all into it. But um, first and foremost, this this is a podcast that celebrates the female millennial zeitgeist. 
And when I was researching you, you had a couple of roles that I know my listeners would be like, so excited to hear about. Well, one, you were chief content officer of at Goop and you were on that Netflix show, Goop Labs. Yes, that was me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I rem- Wasn't there like a Kama Sutra episode? There was a sex episode where um, it was with um, Betty Dodson, who's um, amazing, now now past. She was in her, I feel like she was in her early 90s when we filmed it. And it was about the vulva. And That's right. And we showed a woman masturbating herself to an orgasm. And they let us show it. Yes. I'm like a recovering purity culture victim. And I made myself watch it. And I was proud. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I'm trying to become more comfortable squirming at sex-related stuff. And that was such an educational episode. Yeah. That was a really good well, series. Well, I'm proud of you for watching it. That was a great, I'm very proud of that episode. And, you know, like you, I remember the when we were first watching it cut and it was uh, the three of, us, three of us sitting on a couch and maybe four of us were in the room and we were all sort of like not engaging with each other because it was so confronting I think for all of us to watch it and then at the end we were all crying because it's very beautiful it's very beautiful and you really have to sit sit with yourself and realize there's there's no vulgarity here Mm -mm. you know no and um yeah that was an important episode and really well done and um so I remembered you from that and this is obscure but something that was so (laughs) important to me at the time you co-wrote Lauren Conrad's book about mm-hmm. style. Is that correct? That's correct. And her and her book about beauty. Okay. Those <laughs> LC books. Those are. <laughs> are iconic. Oh. The cover has a sock bun for the love of God. I mean, it is like the most amazingly 2011 piece of pop culture <laughs> history. <laughs> and I'm obsessed with Lauren Conrad's style because. I just I just think people like even underestimate her level of influence before we even had the vocabulary for influencers in terms yeah. of how influential her style was. No, and just her. You know, it's funny because before that or during that actually, I was um I was a magazine editor at Condé Nast for the first 10 years of my career or so and I worked at started at this magazine called Lucky. That's where I spent I don't know a lot a long my formative years, which was this now defunct uh, shopping magazine, but it was revolutionary at the time, the fastest growing magazine in Condé Nast history and essentially like a herald of the internet. And I was, you know, it's like I, one one of my jobs was to cover online shopping, which was incredibly nascent and, and also this like new concept of these bloggers and influencers. So I gave a lot of these women many who are still with us doing content, um, their first press, which is wild yeah. to think about. And was very sort of, we were all, and the magazine was about real women and and style and small independent designers and local boutiques when all of that was just sort of erupting. It's In a way, it sort of died since then, interestingly, yeah. because everything's available everywhere. But so... But the way that, um, you know, they would put someone on the cover and it was typically at first it was models, then it was actors we all and musicians. We all remember sort of that turn in culture. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you would have up on the walls, we would have the covers and the numbers in terms of newsstand sales 
it's wild to think about buying a magazine on the newsstand. And like then you'd have your subscriber and your subscriber growth. But newsstand was really like not the A-B test because there's no B version, but the way of understanding the resonance of and particularly year over year. Right. Because September obviously is a big was a big issue for us, whereas January is not. So but what was striking about Lauren Conrad is that um, an undeniable is her, I would just say, relevancy, like the mm-hmm. fact that the resonance that that women had with her, because she just, and not just for Lucky, just like cranked on the newsstand in a way that was so interesting to me, and also like a harbinger of what's to come, which is that we all want relatability Mm-hmm. We want to feel seen or, you know, and I, I look nothing like Lauren Conrad for the record, but there's something incredibly comforting, reasonable, realistic about her. And she was like the quintessential real girl. And she, I can say, I haven't seen her in a long, I mean, that was 20 years ago. I love that that's still in my, it's like because I had a, normally I ghostwrite, sort of my preference. But that was my first project. And so I have like a with Elise Lunan credit on those books. So they're attached to my um, Google search very prominently. But I will say that um, Lauren's wonderful and uh, like just lovely and not pretentious. I think that's the other reason. Be curious for your perspective on this. But with Lauren, too, um, because she wasn't an actor and because she wasn't she there was no creation of persona for mm-hmm. her like she wasn't trying she was herself and you saw that on the hills right and um and that's the same with her fashion and beauty like oh, lauren yeah. is not a projected image in a way that i think we're so there's so many people who are and then as consumers of that or people who are perceiving the image we're constantly looking to sort of like understand that chasm between who someone is and who they pretend to be. Oh, you totally. Know? Absolutely. So she's I, she's yeah. such an interesting example of that period of time when the culture shifted. I mean, even just from Laguna Beach being like the first, you know, soap style reality show that we didn't know wasn't real until later. And then she It wasn't real. <laughs> right. <laughs> Now they're out here doing Selling Sunset, and I'm like believing Christine Quinn is selling these properties. I just, I can be fooled easily. Um, but I I feel like it's interesting looking back on like, I, I mean, when I was reading your background too, what always sticks out to me is when people have like rom-com jobs. Like all I and many millennial women wanted was like, you know, the real life version of Runway Magazine or to be like Andy Anderson, How To Girl or like whatever. And then Elsie mm-hmm. L- comes on the scene. She's allegedly this reality character. She gets the Teen Vogue job. She's at the magazine. She's working New York Fashion Week. Like, she's a real vessel that we're like, oh, we could like have the rom com job. It is true. I mean, and it's funny just thinking about that time. I forgot about the Teen Vogue, the Teen Vogue job with Emily Weiss, which is yes. amazing. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I was a magazine editor. Um, I was probably working um, congruently with Lauren, whatever her name is. He wrote The Devil Wears Prada and then was uh, at Condé Nast when that that movie came out, too, which was also such a snapshot of a certain point of culture that was obviously like 
a fabrication to a point, but also like not completely unrealistic. I mean, that's such a funny, it was a really interesting time. And also like that was a moment where media was evolving quite rapidly and changing influence mm-hmm. was like she's the first person who I think dramatically showed the 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 groundswell in terms of who gets to be influential in our culture mm-hmm. um and I mean it's it is a real snapshot it is a real I think turning point for um culture oh for sure and like I yeah I mean I and I'm just like not even being facetious at all when I tell you that the that book was like a bible to so many of us and I was flipping through it yesterday and I'm like I just like we really were trying to wear a caged heel from cubicle to club everything was day to night everything was everything like everything was day to night <laughs> it the was mythical it's just, day to night I know and it, it makes it just makes me laugh now but that like post recession era of style is my favorite thing ever because we all were just trying to uh get by dressing for the office that was still forcing us to make to wear business casual on like a very low salary um and trying to put outfits together and people who democ influencers who like democratize fashion and made it accessible in ways magazines hadn't before were so important to me and anyways i loved that book i just thought i'd tell you but i i i like hate when people pull out the most obscure thing i've ever done to focus on when i have another (laughs) thing i'm doing so i'm sorry for that (laughs) no i appreciate it i i'm glad that you loved that book. I haven't looked at it in a while. I should. One time I saw Jane Lynch in a restaurant in Chicago. I live in Chicago. I don't see a lot of celebrities out. But I earnestly told her that I loved her work in Another Cinderella Story. And I meant it. I love Another Cinderella Story. And she was just like, what? <laughs> like, she thought I was kidding. I was like, no, I, I love Another Cinderella Story. She's like, nobody ever brings that up. And I was like, I got to stop doing this. Um, anyway. Back to the book, On Our Best Behavior. Okay. So like I mentioned earlier, the book examines what it means to be a good woman using the seven deadly sins as a framework. And this is the most mind-blowing thing to me. Um, the I think it's important for people to know at the top, but the book al- really illuminated for me that I don't know if I knew this or not or what, but the, the seven deadly sins were never in the Bible. No, it's not wild. It's wild. I mean, so, and I, and I should also... Um, clarify that the book isn't about, well, it's a bit about the the creation of Judeo-Christian patriarchy and where all of this comes from, our systems and our, our understanding of sort of men and women and and the formation of that and where morality was joined with with patriarchal sort of men in charge ideologies. And it's it's essentially a, I hadn't really known where it came from. Patriarchy. I had just assumed, oh, this is how it's always been. And, you know, this is an, the natural order. So one, I wanted to understand sort of, is that true? And it's not. Um, we're, we're far more creative than that, I would say. But um, I also wanted to understand sort of where, as someone who didn't grow up in a religious household, my father's Jewish, my mom's a recovering Catholic, I um, never really I didn't, I have in my life do not subscribe to a certain set of beliefs. I've never sort of said, oh, this is a sin or this is, you know, this wasn't part of my childhood, this system of understanding. And so I, but when I sort of 
tried to understand these qualities of what it is to be a good woman with this idea that being a good woman is the most important quality in our culture, that the worst thing you can do to a woman is destroy her reputation. She's a bad mother, a bad toxic coworker, bad friend. Meanwhile, men are conditioned and programmed for power. So they can be terrible people. They can do terrible things to, to people. They can be criminals. And as long as we perceive them as powerful, we still revere them. Weakness is is sort of what we what we condemn in men. So I wanted to understand what this list was. And to me, it came down to good women. A good woman is never tired, has no requirements for rest, has no wants or desires, sexual or in terms of her own life or career, um, is happy to subjugate her wants to other people's needs, um, has no need for acclaim, attention, or praise, and is never upset about any of it. And when I started to sort of try to understand where those came from within patriarchy, like how did this become the part of the fabric of the ways that we hold ourselves in sort of obedient and compliant positions, I realized like, oh, these map to the seven deadly sins. What are they? Sloth, pride, envy, greed, gluttony, lust, anger. And then I went to look for them in the in both the Old and the New Testament, and I realized, oh, they're not there, not in any, they're sort of maybe mentioned one-off here and there, but they're not ever described as a set. And so I did a lot of research for this book and found that they actually came out of the Egyptian desert in the fourth century at the hands of a monk named Evagrius Ponticus, who had taken refuge in the desert because he'd been having an affair with a married woman and then sort of went to, you know, removed himself from the situation and became a monk. He's also credited as one of the early fathers of the Enneagram, which is interesting. And Whoa. yeah, very relevant. You'll see that the sins, the, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, they're built into the Enneagram, those, but they're sort of these tendencies plus vainglory, which is sort of has been subsumed by pride, um, mm. or sometimes it's called deceit. And then fear being the ninth. So so he wrote them down originally as eight thoughts. And there were these distracting thoughts, thoughts that would distract you from par- demonic thoughts, but different, different etymology, different meaning of demonic. And then it wasn't until this is at the almost exactly the same time that the New Testament was being canonized, which is I never realized this either, but um, there are so many more gospels that were in circulation than the four that make up the New Testament. And many of them were deemed heretical, including the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, destroyed. We'll never know how many there were. Her gospel has been recovered um, a couple a couple of um, d- two different copies of it have been recovered in sort of recent decades, centuries. But for the most part, it was it was I just thought, oh, these are the four books, but there were so many more. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, so so he wrote these down. These, there were eight thoughts. The eighth was sadness, which I include in the book in the context of men and toxic masculinity. And then they sort of traveled around the desert. And then it wasn't until 590 that Pope Gregory I 
So to back up for a second, sorry, you didn't really ask for a history lesson, but I'm almost done. But you know what we're Um, getting to is the Roman Empire, which could not be more relevant in this week that we're recording. (laughs) It's a trend right now. This is my Roman Empire was learning about this. (laughs) (laughs) So essentially, so Mary Magdalene, who has this incredible gospel, and she figures quite prominently in my book. And for people who are obsessed with Mary Magdalene, she is the one to whom Jesus, if you buy into any of this. But regardless, in the New Testament, she is the one to whom he resurrected. So she goes back after. she's She and the other women, the other Marys, are with him in the tomb after he is crucified. And the other guys run away. And then when she returns the next day, she sees someone, mistakes him for a gardener, calls out Raboni, and um, it's Jesus, or Christ, and he gives her this teaching. That teaching is what is in Mary Magdalene's gospel that was deemed heretical. But that teaching, in many ways, makes her the first apostle. And instead, she goes back, some of this is in the New Testament, and tells the other apostles, and there, Peter's like, he would never, you know, he would never choose a woman, yada, yada, yada. Here we are now. So in the New Testament, Mary Magdalene is referred to as the one from whom Jesus cast seven demons. But again, demon having a different word. So some theologians, different meaning. Some theologians think that she was he was balancing her chakras. There are lots of theories. Mm. It's never clarified what he's talking about, but it would make her the most sanctified person in the Bible. So, um, and there's lots of exercising in 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 the in the Bible. So now we get to 590. Pope Gregory the First who's the one who sort of actually turned the Vatican into like the papacy and created all these systems of government, did a lot for the poor. He did some good things, but it was sort of the first, like he was the first one to turn it really into a thing. And he, in this homily says that the seven deadly says that these seven thoughts are the cardinal vices. And this, these are the same seven sins that, that Jesus cast from Mary De- Mary Magdalene. She is the carrier of these seven sins. And then in the same homily, he says that she is the same woman as the woman who anoints Jesus's feet with her hair, different woman, but, and that this woman is a prostitute. And so in one fell swoop, Mary Magdalene becomes the carrier of the seven deadly sins and a prostitute. And she wears that reputation for centuries. He's also the one who list, lifted the edict on iconography. So you start to see religious art, and which was prohibited in, in the Old Testament. So you see her frequently painted as like groveling at Christ's feet mm-hmm. and um, dressed as like in red as this like penitent prostitute. And so it was only in like the 80s that the Pope said, oh, well, she wasn't actually a prostitute. And then it was only a few years ago that Pope Francis made her the apostle to the apostles. She really should have been the first apostle. It would have been a very different church. Right. Let's just say that. Yes. So over time, even though not explicitly in the Bible, the the seven deadly sins kind of became, I think you refer to it as like a punch card for penance, Mm -hmm. like for how to kind of score and qualify the type of sin in addition to like the Ten Commandments. Well, actually, yes. what I thought was really interesting that you pointed out is that the Ten Commandments are, are about things you did, like you stole, you lied, you killed. 
But the seven deadly sins are interesting because they're like, you're a slut. Your your thoughts, yes, yes. You're lazy. You're this. You're that. And yes. I thought that was a really interesting distinction. Yeah, and that's a big distinction between Judaism and Christianity is that Judaism is very clear about it needing to be an action, whereas mm-hmm. with Christianity, suddenly it's like to have a lustful thought is equivalent to um, having sex with someone who's not your spouse, essentially. Like to think it is the equivalent of doing it, which in a way becomes like incredibly inhibiting, as you can imagine, and um, creates this like very unclear accounting where also you can just, you're, you're, you're guilty by thought and you get yeah. into confession and you get into sort of the like, try not to think about a white rabbit right now. Oh, you just thought of a white rabbit. Like you get into these situations where of course we're all going to think that we're bad and depraved and, and full of sin. And it's a very, it's, it's not at all. I think what was actually intended. Um, Cause Mary Magdalene's gospel is all about like, God is in here. Do not listen to an external authority. Like you have all are the, you're the only time you're, a sort of adulterous is when you sort of deny the reality and goodness of who you are. Like it's yeah. not at all sort of like a, you guys are condemned to go to hell. It's not that. No, it not is. at all. There's something I really liked about the book too that I talk about a lot on this podcast. There's something about youth group culture, like WWJD bracelet culture. Like I think millennials, even in secular spaces, were exposed to a lot of purity culture from true love weights rings to abstinence only federally funded sex ed, you know, and, and mm, you know, the media's yes. obsession with virginity. I think we all were exposed to this era of, of, you know, purity and something that I appreciated you describing per what you said is like, you weren't part of a religious household. You weren't like taught this stuff. Like it was um, these tenants you had to live by or anything yet. You were still like, you know, kind of through osmosis somehow through the culture. Yes exposed to these attributes that are just projected onto women in general, regardless of your spiritual association. And I think that we, you know, while in therapy and stuff, you know, you do a lot of inner child work, you focus on your childhood, your parents, your upbringing, all sorts of things having to do with your immediate circle. But I I don't always think that we focus enough on how the culture shapes us. And beyond that, how an individual will internalize it very differently. Yes. No. And this was the one of the big sort of the reasons why I wrote this book what, and had to bring myself into it in terms of my own relationship to sloth, greed, gluttony, all of these things is because the bi- culture is contagious and we whispered into each other's ears. And it is so much bigger, I think, than any family of origin or personal psychological makeup. It is just everywhere. And it is imprinted on us. And you can say, I don't believe in any of this. This does not apply to me. I'm not religious. I don't, I do not abide. And yet, as you were just saying, like the culture and the way that often medical communities and the legal system and government, everyone sort of colludes with this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you were mentioning sex and the, the chapter on lust. It's like the cultural messaging for women and girls is so insistently strong at every single level, which is it is your job to keep yourself safe. Girls and women are babysitters for a rapacious male desire. They cannot be expected to control themselves 
So if you do anything to inspire their lust, it is your responsibility, or at least you are equal and bearing responsibility. And um, that women and girls, this is Deborah Tolman, but like we are all taught, this is so much bigger than sort of chastity culture, that you, that girls and women should be desirable, but not desiring, that we should be chosen, but never choosing, and never actors of our own desire. And there is so, I mean, there's just so much baked into that, Mm -hmm. including who gets to be the fairest one of them all and beauty standards and to the point where I think so many of us are completely dissociated from either trauma, because I think trauma, as we know, is so pervasive, very rare to meet a woman or a girl who hasn't been sexually traumatized in some way or sexually abused in some way. Um, But to not even know what we want and the focus instead is on the projection of desirability rather than, you know, and I've had this conversation around this this really interesting moment in time that we find ourselves in where, you know, it's like I'm in my 40s, so I'm not a millennial, but I see the girls now and I'm like, it's, shock, it's shocking to me, right? Like the the bodies on display. And in many ways, I'm like, that's amazing. And everyone should wear whatever they want. I very much believe that. And we live in a culture that will offer them no protection when something invariably happens. Not only no protection, but they will be blamed, slut-shamed. What were you wearing? How many drinks did you have? Why did you get into that Uber? Again, this idea that girls are are responsible for maintaining and preserving their own sacred space. Um, and that also, I and I've had this conversation, I don't have any daughters, but I'm like, the the thing is that there is such a difference in our culture between being sexy and being sexual. And we right. teach girls, again, how to be sexy, how to be desirable, how to draw attention, how to be be sort of the receptacle of male desire. But if something happens to you, it's your fault, Kate. And but no, like, do you know, again, it's like knees, shoulders, toes, right? There's no, you go into a museum, you're not going to see a vulva or a vagina. Where hum- It's like the fact that we made that TV show in 2020 and that that was revolutionary TV. Right. Meanwhile, like you go to the Met, it's just like male genitalia on display all the time. We all know what it looks like. Um, but with those girls, I'm like, I hope you know what you want. I hope you know it feels good. Like, I almost want to be like, in order to wear this, you have to pass a test <laughs> where you are like, I love my body. I know how to give myself pleasure. I know how to say what I want from a partner. I mean, that's insane. I recognize. Yet, that's what I think is happening. It's like the projection of sexy without actually being sexual. If you asked one of the girls, if you asked a girl that, I'm sure she would most likely die of shame. We have no like sex ed, no sex conversation in this country, but it's completely, she's completely comfortable being objectified because that's how contagious our culture is. Sorry. Thank you for listening to my Ted talk. I, I, 
I, you know, I hear snapping. I, we could do a full hour and a half on just this topic because I, this is something I think about all the time, especially if I were to have a daughter and how to communicate that. Because even, even sometime when I've, I feel like a lot of those things you described, I didn't really like think through or explore till I was, you know, further in my twenties. And I just think it's wild that, yeah, we're not really taught about sex and love in the context of like our needs it's just all about male validation and Mm -hmm. um that's what i i think about all the time how people are being taught these days like you would hope that they would have the uh vocabulary and understanding like you said but i highly doubt that's the case because there's still such a level of awkwardness i just think that too like it is so drilled into women that sex needs must be relational and procreative. Whereas for men, it can be recreational, right? right? Or entirely based on their pleasure or self-exploration. And this idea that women, that it shouldn't be a pleasure-based enterprise, it shouldn't be for fun. Why then do we have the same ability, right? For extreme pleasure, if it's really only supposed to be procreative, it makes no sense. And, um, But it also, you know, you can find all of this back in the Bible and its various translations. So, for example, um, in the New Testament is essentially trying to confirm or sort of backdoor into the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah to make Christ the Messiah. That's sort of one of the mechanisms that's at play. And so in the Old Testament, in in the Torah, it talks about a Beulah. this mother of of the Messiah. And Beulah means, in Hebrew, young women. It has nothing to do with sexual status, marital status, just a young woman. But in the Greek version, it's translated into Parthenos, which means virgin. So even that became a mistranslation, intentional mistranslation to create this idea of the sort of revelation or reverence for virginity that wasn't there sort of originally. Mm -hmm. And then it's sort of been passed on to us. You know, you hear all about, and then she, then I don't, I get confused, but then like Mother Mary then had to be also not a carrier of sin. So her birth also had to be uh, whatever. It starts, it just stops making sense. Meanwhile, it's like, when you go into some of the, the deeper etymologies and translations, this idea of virgin, virgin forest, um, et cetera, is more about wholeness and less about she and of herself was complete, less about like, is your hymen intact? Which is like a biological um, fallacy anyway. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you think about so many of these concepts that have been handed down to us and they're getting more whisper-like you know, it's maybe less every generation, it gets a little less insistent, but this is where it starts. This is why, regardless of your beliefs, it's really important, I think, to know where where it came from, how it evolved and changed through men over time, and then to figure out like what you yourself hold true. Because I think so many of us are, are obliged to or dependent on um, stories mm-hmm. that are not actually from the source. Um, Because I'm I'm personally like, 
I love Jesus. I love what Jesus actually says. I love his aphorisms. I don't like how he has been, I would say, mishandled, mistreated, misinterpreted, and um, weaponized. But when you go to actually like what he was saying, particularly in some of the um, in some of the Gnostic Gospels, like there's some beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, but I don't think he was saying like men have power, women adhere to these culturally mandated right. ideas of goodness, and this can only be you can only receive these labels by like the confessional booth and a priest or a a professor or a parent or all these this cultural validation of your inherent worth. Like you are good. It can't be taken away from you. And and what's interesting is when I was reading and I was kind of thinking of like throughout my life what did I equate with being good and at a point there was a high correlation with like keeping your virtue your virginity like being a good girl meant being a virgin not like being promiscuous with boys whatever and regardless of a religious affiliation I think a lot of young women I don't know about now but at least in my era like this concept of virginity was so pervasive in that it, it further made you into an object like it's something it's a card you can swipe it's a gift you give away it's something when you lose it mm-hmm. you can never get back just the, the the verbiage we used about virginity was so damning in that and especially when you're not having conversations about consent and you're suggesting there's something you can lose or that can be taken from you without your consent and that should correlate to your self-worth i feel so enraged when i think about the way i thought about virginity and how I tied so much of my worth to that. And it made me so scared of mm-hmm. interacting with men that I didn't even know how to like safely participate somewhere in between. And yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing up the translation of that because I, I think that sometimes it's hard for people to use your words to un- to really grasp that like a lot of stuff in the Bible is what do you call it? Like a centuries long game of telephone. And like, yes, you know, the the narratives that made the cut and distilled to what it is today like is a series of eras of convenience of whoever was in power who whoever wanted to sustain their power and whoever wanted to conveniently subjugate women to yeah. you know maintain their place and I, I i don't know like books like the making of biblical womanhood and stuff have like really yes. helped me understand i just think there's a lot of shame people especially with religious backgrounds carry like religion does yes a great job of shaming you for the qualities to bring it back to the seven sins that make you human. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> make you feel like you need to eternally repent for something that is normal. And I think that, and you actually had a quote about this that I really liked and wrote down, but basically about how, like, when you really think through these seven things, it's just like, okay, so wanting something, wanting to be financially secure. It's almost like, you know, that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like, these yeah. things aren't these crazy self-indulgent pursuits. They're just like normal. I, I just don't know when they ever were coded to be something yeah. that was negative. Exactly. Per conversation about always feeling like you need to be productive. Something I'm always looking for in products I endorse is like just to be making less choices. I need curation. I want suggestions. I don't like a paralysis of options. I can't even find a show to stream. And this is why Book of the Month is so great because I want to read more. I want to support new and emerging authors. And they have a curated selection that their experts choose of the best five to seven new books that I can pick from. Therefore, I have a curated set so I know they're good because I trust them. 
but it's personalized to a degree where I can pick which book from that set, you know, piques my interest. And the great part about Book of the Month is that they often feature new and emerging authors. So I can be sure I'm getting the hits, but also some new talent that I want to be able to support. And I'm really excited because they now have audiobooks as well. Book of the Month launched their curated audiobook collection in, in addition to hardcovers, and members can choose and download and listen right in the app. And it's fun to have a new book to read every month, like physically, but I, when I'm, I don't know, doing random chores or trying to be productive around the house per our conversation, I like to have an audiobook on to listen to as well. And also in the same app, members can rate and review and participate in reading challenges. It's also super simple to pick your next book as your book of the month, and you can add backlist books to your box at a discount. And this month for November, they have Jasmine Ward with her book Let Us Descend, or the globe-trotting espionage story The Helsinki Affair. There's an early release by Emma Gray called The Last Love Note. Let the tears flow. You'll be quickly won over by this widowed single mom learning to let love back into her heart. Are you kidding me? I'm already hooked. I know Courtney recently picked up Bright Young Women by Jessica Knoll. We both had our eye on attempting to read Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus because it's a TV show now. And we're like, maybe we should read the book first. Anyway. There are endless choices, hardcover and audio. And if you want to give it a try, get your first book for $5 with code Be There in 5 at bookofthemonth.com. Get your first book for $5 with code Be There in 5 at bookofthemonth.com. It, and it all comes down to sort of like some the ways that, that Jesus and his life and his life at a very specific time of, of occupation, war, otherization, dehumanization. I mean, Elaine Pagels is amazing to read about this too for the context. And then I love um, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. What's Bart Ehrlman? Is that his name? Um, misquoting Jesus. He's, he, he sort of grew up believing in the inerrant word of God, went to various theological academies, now as a professor at, at Princeton. And his point is there are more mistakes and mistranslations in the New Testament than words. Because when you go back and you, there's no original source, so you start looking and you see the way that um, sometimes it's just people hand copying it and making honest mistakes mm -hmm. and or mistranslations as they're changing. You know, it's like Jesus spoke in Aramaic, then it was originally written down in Greek and Coptic, and you can just imagine where we are now. Um, and then also, some of it was malevolent intent. So a lot of the anti-Semitism mm -hmm. that people ascribed to, that was it the Romans who killed um, Jesus, or was it quote unquote the Jews? And a lot of that, the, uh, Professor Earlman, or I hope I'm getting his, but he sort of says like you can actually see it where it was inserted. Um, into later translations. Same, same with a lot of the misogyny in Paul. Mm -hmm. um, and that, so you're looking at a man-made document, and I don't know that any of us should be living our lives according to something that is said to us from there, when I actually, you know, as a pretty spiritual person, think that we all have access. We all have direct access to what actually feels right and true. And if you believe that Jesus is half man, half divine, and that he is sort of running the road for us and showing us the way, inviting us into our own divinity as half human as well, or fully human and fully divine, maybe that's a better way of seeing that, then all of these human tendencies and instincts, like 
our as women, when we repress our need for rest, repress our anger, repress our need for security and enough, repress our need to eat and enjoy our bodies and be present in this world, we are living at half mast. We are denying the entire, not the entire, but we are denying the experience that we are here to have. And, you know, the book, I could have written it as sort of a like, let's be lustful, let's be gluttonous, let's be greedy, and like gotten some laughs. It's not that, but it's like, I want to be in touch with my hunger. I'm tired of policing my body. I'm tired of being 10 pounds underweight and working really hard to maintain that completely unrealistic standard and then projecting it onto other people. Right. Because the book is also about sort of this internalized patriarchy, internalized misogyny, and what as women we police in ourselves and then police in each other. Because you had better not have something that I want. You better not do something that I would not dare allow myself to do. I will shame you for that. Right. Because it is so repressed in me. I I have to say, like, revisiting this over the... Because I read it when I was... I told you earlier, I read it when I was pregnant. And then I was rereading parts of it over the weekend. And I kind of, like... Uh, like, I, I felt very misty all the way through sloth. Because <laughs> I think that hmm. this is... I mean, even to take it back to, like, childhood, I think about this often, like, how I'm an indoorsy gal. And the anxiety I felt since childhood of, like, if if I was to be a good girl, like, a decent person, I need to be outside. Like, it wasn't okay to mm-hmm. be inside. And I think about the pressure to go outside and how that was just, like, kind of an early, like, you know, elementary school hustle culture where I was, like, <laughs> you just are taught from mm-hmm. a young age, like, you shouldn't sit. Like, it that is lazy you need to be productive, even if productive is like playing Red Rover. Like I, I just from an early age, you feel like you need to always be doing and the way it affects us as kids. And then when we have kids of our own is just kind of a, a real an interesting cycle that if you don't stop and think about, you really get caught in. And I was feeling very caught in that even just like, I mean, I don't have a mat leave. I'm self-employed and um, I spent most of my first six weeks with a new baby just panicking about spiraling into my own irrelevancy because if I don't produce like my output is my self-worth and I don't think I really understood mm-hmm. that until I was on maternity leave and I that was compromised and I had somewhere else I wanted my attention to be and it simply wasn't mm. yes uh all of it I mean it is so you're in a phase right now where sloth will become even more intense because now there's endless doing and there's a child's needs and you'll never be done with the doing, Kate. There's always more that can be done for your son. And that's very much the culture that we're caught in and very much the culture of modern motherhood with only, I would say, increasing insistency, um, particularly with social media and projection of all these standards. And like, I'm going to just let me just document all the enriching activities I'm doing with my kids all weekend long. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the way that we are, I think, projecting our goodness as parents as a shield against our own feelings of inadequacy, not enoughness, like we'll never meet these needs. Right. And so we just sort of project it on like to each other because it's just like you've, you've repressed, suppressed, 
project, Mm -hmm. you know, and when the reality is we know this, we know women are exhausted and furious and that there are these persistent inequities in our culture, not only in pay gap and wealth gap, but also in sort of childcare gap and who's doing what at home. And that's really what the sloth chapter is about. But it's also about the revelation that I had. And like you, I'm now, I've been self-employed for three years, which is its own, I will never get back in a cage. And yet I also, it's like its own insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I'm the primary breadwinner. My husband, we're a dual income family, but I earn more and I'm far more, just I'm I'm more aggressive about everything. And there's an equity in our, you know, childcare. He has no problem sitting on the couch and doing nothing. No problem. I don't, I think a lot of men are similar. Mm-hmm. And so I, what what this chapter was also a revelation of, though, is that I had a lot of anger at him in terms of the inequity. And, um, and then he said to me, you know, he was like, since we've been married, you have never, you refused to sit on the couch, like, for more than 20 minutes before you're up and doing something or like on your computer multitasking, can you just sit here with me and do nothing? And I was like, no, I can't do nothing. You know, like there's so much, who's gonna, Um, and then it was like this revelation, this slowly dawning revelation continues to unfold for me of no one's making me do that. Mm -hmm. This is me cattle prodding myself about the standards that I think I need my house to adhere to, about um, like not dropping any balls, about, you know, like this is me. I am the one who, my husband isn't saying to me, like I expect, my husband would eat microwave macaroni and cheese like with pleasure uh, three times a day. Like this is me saying like we need to have balanced, healthy meals that I'm going to cook myself and we need to have a perfectly clean house, et cetera. Right. And like, yes, I want him to help me meet those standards. But these are cultural standards about what it is to be a good woman and a good mother and a good partner that I am abiding by. Yep. And I need to take responsibility for that in order to unhook from it. And, and leave room for like a mutual contract of like, what do we think this looks like? And then how are we going to reach these goals without me doing most of it? Right. Instead of me just being pissed. I know it is funny how it, there's almost like a, when I'm like really getting myself like worked up and stressed, and I often think about who it's directed toward, it's like my own bad feelings. Like I'm trying to prevent my own bad feelings about myself that I can't even place where they came from. But it's rarely somebody else asking me to do something. It's mm-hmm. more so in, in like this is an example of what I think is so powerful about kind of deconstructing historical context is that like I almost didn't have kids because I thought I um, wasn't maternal because I'm not I'm not great at a lot of domestic tasks. But the fact that I was even conflating being maternal with being domestic is crazy because even yes. that's a social construct projected onto women to to your point that really was thriving for about a decade of, you know, in the yes. 1950s when I this kind of housewife, highly domestic 
woman, like this image was concocted that's like really I internalized and thought I had to wake up one day and want to be more like that person. And I don't even know why, but I just kind of thought yes. like I shouldn't have kids if I don't meet the image that society portrays mothers to be. Otherwise, I must not be destined to be one. And it's interesting to, yeah, the book was really helpful in that context, too, of just understanding how sloth is, is you know, there there is kind of ancient origins and then it's far more modern origins that are important to deconstruct, too. Yes. A thousand percent. I'm so glad you brought that up. And this, so for people listening, we may be redefining what it means to be a good woman, but I don't need to redefine what's been a good gift that I tend to give people for holidays, birthdays, whatever it may be. And that is the gift of Osea. I love introducing people to this brand. The holidays are going to sneak up on us, and it's important to get ahead of gift shopping. And Osea is taking the guesswork out of gift giving with their Super Glow body set. Mind you, this is a great gift for yourself as well. It's a limited edition box featuring three of Osea's best-selling body care products, full-size Andaria Algae Body Oil, Andaria Cleansing Body Polish, and a travel-size Andaria Algae Body Butter, all packed in a box that is already so beautiful, you can skip gift wrapping altogether, which I love. Their Andaria Algae Body Oil is viral for a reason on TikTok and in my heart. It, it's so moisturizing. It actually gives you that glowy skin you see like on celebrities, on TV, on red carpets, on, I don't know, people that drink water. And I'm always wondering how people got it. And OC has been my answer. I just put it on right when I get out of the shower. And it locks in moisture all day and it's not greasy. It doesn't get on my sheets or clothes. And I prep my skin with that body polish. It's just like the best exfoliant imaginable. And it smells incredible. And their body butter I like to mix self-tanner drops with sometimes. This is like my go-to trio for an everything shower. Anyway, Osea's Super Glow Body Set is the perfect way to try three of their best-selling products at incredible value. Right now, you can save 30% on the set at oseamalibu.com. Plus, we'll share a discount code for an additional 10% off. Give the gift of glow this holiday season with clean vegan skincare from Osea. And right now, we have a special discount just for my listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code BTIF at oseamalibu.com. Head to OSEAMalibu.com and use code BTIF for 10% off. It's like the 1950s, leave it to beaver, like advent of modern television um, coincided with this idea of like very gendered norms when it was possible, when there was a vibrant middle class and it was possible for a decade for women to sort of embody this house type archetype, housewife archetype while men did their sort of bumbling thing in the world. And this was what was codified in culture as a norm. And then the reality is that it didn't endure. Most families have needed to be dual income since the 70s. It's been impossible to maintain a middle class, not for everyone, but for, for many people, most people. Um, I even write about sort of Phyllis Shafley, who's the one who sort of tried to, you know, did end the Equal Rights Amendment and was sort of that like first sort of like um, just rep represents that archetype of, you know, we see it all over the place with like Marjorie Taylor Greene now, but sort of that Sarah Palin, that archetype of like the rabid dog patriarchal woman mm -hmm. who was denouncing feminists and um, for destroying modern family values. Well, her mom was the breadwinner in her household, which is ironic, because um, they her father couldn't keep them in the middle class. But she had so much projected 
rage, et cetera. No, interesting. Um, but the reality is, like, it wasn't a reality. It, it wasn't a possibility for those who would even have wanted to choose it. I'm not sure how many women would have, like, wanted to choose it. But then it was, like, put on us as deviant to not fully embody that role as well, which is why I think you see this this idea. And I see it amongst my friends Again, not conscious. This isn't conscious, but where it's become so extreme because, and I used to do this when I had a full-time job, but like I would have an incredibly intense week with a lot of travel and um, just working a crazy amount. And then instead of saying, I'm exhausted and I need to um, retreat and recover and rest, I was like, well, now I need to bring an equal amount of energy to my kids mm. who have been, um, haven't received this from me. So I'm going to just parent the shit out of them. And, <laughs> and just, I would just destroy myself mm-hmm. in the ratcheting up of expectations that if balance means equal effort on both sides. Right. And I think that's why we're seeing so much like overparenting, overprogramming. It's just a function of our, um, extreme anxiety about not doing enough for other people. Right. And enough is, yeah, it's a moving target. I mean, it doesn't really exist, hence the over-parenting. And so for you to kind of be at peace with the sloth uh, sin, if you will, like, what has been most helpful? Like, are you, like, I think in the book you talk about this, but like, are you able to sit and watch a full movie now like do you really prioritize your own leisure in a way that you didn't prior to researching and writing this yeah I I feel like I've just had to listen to my body so much more in terms of just like I'm tired and I this is enough so stop and it's not perfect I, I didn't write a book saying like I solved all of my you know this is enough and and it's been interesting, like as the book has come out, you know, writing it by myself with sort of my book editor and workshopping it with her and then sort of this promise that as it comes out and more women can um, book club it and, and sort of understand this overarching framework that is so deep in our consciences, conscience, consciousness that we could start to interrupt this programming with each other and it starts to move much more rapidly. So I'd say like a lot of my progress has happened in the last few months since the book has come out and I've had been able to have conversations with other women. Um, But, and like, this is such a weird example, but for Sloth, another big thing that happened for me, um, but happened after my book went to press is that last summer, I fell off a horse and broke my neck. And I didn't know my neck was broken. I was, I'm completely fine. I was in a lot of pain, but I wasn't, um, it, it, it was stable. So it wasn't, it didn't create any, I didn't need surgery, but I did need to be immobilized for a month. And so I had a brace on, I couldn't drive, I couldn't lift anything. I couldn't do anything. And I had to spend a month, it was like an immersion therapy of, just sitting with my own anxiety and feeling not at ease because I just really couldn't do anything, Kate, mm-hmm. for a month. I couldn't do anything for my family. Couldn't really work. I tried. Um, and that, so I was very present with my discomfort. 
But that's what's required is to actually, instead of moving into action, which is my preference, like I feel uncomfortable, I'm going to go like reorganize everything in my bathroom. I feel uncomfortable. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to soothe by like doing things. I'm going to go to the grocery store and like make dinner so I feel better about myself. Um, To not be able to soothe in that way was very instructive. So nobody needs to break their neck. But part of it is like, what happens if I just refuse to have the same reaction and I just let myself sit? The other thing that was shocking, but won't be surprising, is that when we got back from the ranch where I broke my neck, um, before I knew it was broken, I just like really couldn't move off the couch. I was sitting there with my kids and all of our stuff was in the living room and like I like to immediately unpack and do laundry and um I'm really fun. So um but I couldn't do it and I just was like staring at the bag and staring at the bag and then somehow in the first six, eight, twelve hours that we were home, my husband did it. Mm, imagine that. And I didn't ask him yeah. to. And but I was like, wow, I wonder what else he could take care of if I didn't take care of it immediately. Yeah. I like how you refer to like the tinkering around the house, the organizing or the cleaning as like a form of self-soothing because that's kind of is what it is. Like I'm never really moving the needle in a big way. It's just like in that moment, I I feel anxious and I need to be doing something and this soothes me and convinces me that for a moment I am. And per your injury, though not the same, one of my observations about having a really miserable pregnancy was I realized I'd lived my entire life in my head. And pregnancy forced me to live in my body. And I had to I, I had to stop. I had to sit down. I had to prioritize something else besides my desire for productivity. And it was educational because, to your point, the world didn't end. I didn't spiral yeah. into career irrelevancy uh, or financial ruin. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just it, it's, it's like so obvious that you can hit pause, but sometimes in the cycle of it all, you really convince yourself you are so essential to every operation and it simply won't get done unless you're a part of it. Yeah. And the, and then the sort of acknowledging in that cycle, and I'm not sure how you're parenting, but for me, parenthood, a good friend of mine who um, is a showrunner who finally gets to go back to work, but she, she created that show Glow and she was a writer on Nurse Jackie and she's done amazing roar, like amazing work. And her husband's also a, a screenwriter, and she was had finally gotten her first job in a, a writer's room when she accidentally got pregnant. And she was married, and it was sort of something they were intending to do, but the timing was not good. And But it was really good in one sense, which is that Liz had to go back into the writer's room like a week after giving birth. This is not a good story in that sense, but this is the reality, and... I think she had to travel. And so her husband, who's lovely, ha- figured it out. And they say that it's like honestly one of the best things that could have happened because he became, if if not a co-equal parent, a more primary parent because he just was put into a situation where he had to take care of Ben. And um and now they and they have like an incredibly equal relationship where he never did the sort of like the parental, the maternal gatekeeping that can happen where you're like, I'm really the only one who can feed the baby or like change the, do this right. 
And so before I had my child, Liz was like, just resist with every ounce of just let Rob do everything, but let him be the more competent parent. And I did do that. And I will say, when it comes to parenting, we sort of started out on the same foot. And that has really served me well. Um, There was never any like, I don't know how to do this, or I don't really, I'm not, you're better with the baby. Um, But it's really hard to do because it's like contrary to everything that we're taught about how desperately babies need their mothers and not their fathers. Oh, totally. You know, it's interesting. Something similar happened to me where I told you before we were recording, I got readmitted postpartum. And my husband also had to figure everything out. And it was all this crap I registered for. He had never seen in his life. But it, it, it took something so extreme where I was uncontactable. I was in a hospital bed. So, but guess what? He figured it out. And I actually would argue he is more of, he has been more of the primary parent the first six weeks. Um, and when I got back from the hospital, it was like attending new student orientation at my own home. And it was great. Yes. A hundred percent. And it's so valuable. Anyone who's listening who is like, hasn't had a baby yet, wants to like, let your partner be primary. You will benefit. All of you will benefit so uh, extraordinarily down the road. There's never, there's no gap. There's no, um, it just keeps going, you know? Absolutely. And the other thing I've seen like a lot of discourse about lately is that's helped me with sloth is thinking about like, like laundry, for example, the like nagging feeling of it not not being done only to have to do it like the next day and the next day and the next day. And the importance of reframing these things is like cycles, like just reframe laundry will never be done. It it is an ongoing thing that always has to be done. So like put that out of your mind as a thing that you didn't get done today. It is kind of thankless to finish a task only to have to redo it like almost immediately. And you're never really going to replenish a feeling of sustained productivity if you, I don't know, put too much stock in those cycles. Yes, a thousand percent. And yes, and particularly for women, there's always more doing that needs to be done, always. But it is not our job to enslave ourselves to all the doing that will never be done so that we can feel like we're sort of, again, like cattle prodding ourselves. There has to be some form of liberation of just saying like, yeah, it's just going to pile up. Like, I, I recognize how hard that is. I'm someone who needs a clean environment, or so I've told myself, in order to function. And part of it is understanding what's actually at the root of that anxiety. Is it actually because you need sort of a surface a surface clarity, or is it something else? Because for me, it's often something else. It's these feelings of inadequacy, of I'm lazy, I haven't done enough today. I, you know, and that that's a deeper thing that needs to be attended to rather than just like band-aid over right. with, you know, refolding your laundry or like reorganizing your closet. Absolutely. I want to get into envy and a little of pride because I think these were so enlightening for me. And actually envy was like, the origin story of the entire book, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Envy. And it started with a conversation that I had with um, Lori Gottlieb, now probably five years ago, six years ago, um, about her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is a great book. Mm-hmm. And she's a psychotherapist. And it was just this small moment. It's not a big theme in her book. But in it, she says, 
Um, I tell my clients to pay attention to their envy because it shows them what they want. And this was just like, whoa, in part because my immediate reaction to hearing the word envy was like, ew, gross. I'm not envious, like gross. I don't like that. I'm not, I have no envy, which I knew obviously was completely true, untrue. And then I was like, but I don't know what I want. And so I just kept thinking about this and thinking about this and thinking about this. And I can't remember if she says this in the book or this became my theory, but that the way to sort of figure out where where your envy might be, where your wanting is, is when you start noticing who you deprecate. And so that was the next aha where I um, would notice like this trying to sort of reverse engineer and understand where I was envious because again, like I wouldn't let it come up into my conscious awareness, like, oh, I'm envious of what she has or what she's doing. Um, But that I would notice that I would have, you could call it an irrational emotional reaction to someone, a woman typically, where I would find myself deprecating her. And you can always sort of tell because this is like of the other school moms, like she bothers you and no one else. Mm -hmm. Um, we all sort of have our own tormentors that are individual, but I would find myself saying things like, or hearing things from friends about other women, like, I just don't like her. She rubs me the wrong way. Who does she think she is? And it really was sort of this, why her and why not me? Yeah. And, or I would be like, oh, her book is really not that good. Or she bothers me as a podcast host. I don't like her voice. I mean, as a podcast host, I'm sure when you look at your comments, I see this all the time where I'm like, one, you just not listen to my podcast if you don't like my voice. But second of all, it's always, it's very easy to diagnose in other people where I'm like, oh, you, the the feeling you're having right now is like, I could do this. I'd be better at this than her, Um, which is you want to do this. Go do it. You should launch a podcast. You know, like this is the information. This is when someone bothers you like that, where it's not attached to any specific behavior then it's your soul knocking on the door and saying, pay attention to this. This is full of information for you. This person is pushing on a dream you have for yourself and you need to acknowledge and move towards it. And instead of seeing this person as someone who needs to be dethroned, deprecated, pushed aside, you need to study this person and say, okay, so she's doing that. What is she doing? How can I do that? The problem is, and, and I write about this a lot, like these these sins for women Venn diagram with us. So envy and scarcity, which is I write about in greed, this idea that there can only be one. There's not really room for more than one or two of us. If she has it, then I can't have it. That is deep in our consciousness, and it's not true, but it is deep. And then also we worry that – um. Envy and pride are closely correlated, where we're worried that if we're seen, validated for having gifts, recognized, that we will inspire other people's envy and they will look to destroy us, which is true as well. We see this all over the place. And I think you brought up that um, envy, you know, unlike the other sins, there's it's not there's really nothing reciprocated. Like there's no, I think, like sustained pleasure, like the it's it's just a it's energy mm-hmm. leaving and you're getting nothing back. 
No, it's not like lust or where there's like something pleasurable at stake. It's just feels malicious and bad. But it's so important, particularly for women, where we ha- it hasn't been modeled for us that you can have some- want something and go after it. We're, we're destroyed for that. So it's more important than ever that we start to understand and acknowledge what we want because it's typically aligned with our gifts, what we're here to do, what we're, how we're supposed to share ourselves with the world. And it's just very hard, I think, for a lot of women to, to have any mechanism for acknowledging that wanting or recognizing it or finding it in ourselves. I was essentially doing what I wanted to do. I've, been, I've ghostwritten 12 books for other people, including Lauren Conrad. <laughs> I you know, worked for brands, but my safety space was like pushing all of it through other people or coordinate collaborating with other people rather than sort of trying to own my gifts. I had a lot of shame about that and fear. But it took me sort of being like, why her and not me? And then being like, yeah, why her and not me? But essentially like recognizing my envy in that and then using that as information to unlock what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And it's a very useful tool. And I just want to clarify for people, you are absolutely allowed to not like people. You're definitely allowed to say, like, that woman is not for me. But you will find that you will are able to identify the behavior that you find problematic. So if it's a politician, it might be policies, statements, uh, bills. If it's another mom, it might be the way that she is disparaging to other people or speaks rudely to people. Like, you can always find the behavior. You know it's envy and wanting when it's not tethered to anything. It's just this, like, she just is making you deeply, deeply uncomfortable. That's the tormenting, tormentor, to quote Richard Swartz. This is your, she is your teacher, and she is full of information for you. And it, it's, and when you really, I mean, A, I think there's a lot of introspection to be done with, like, I think a lot of the uh, conversation, especially with social media, like surrounding influencers, surrounding public figures can be incredibly toxic in the form of like a hate follow, a cringe follow. Like, like yeah. I, I'm always asking myself, like, if I am so annoyed, why am I sticking around? <laughs> like, and I think it, it yes. does require digging a bit deeper because it's not always obvious. It's not like I'm envious of their life of their looks of whatever it's like you know maybe it's just this person seems to have a lot of free time they travel a lot something about their home yes. something about you know it's just like you yeah you'll you convince yourself they don't deserve it and you get bitter and resentful toward it and it's just this weird cycle meanwhile as as a public facing woman all day every day i i'm contorting myself in hopes that i'll be able to be palatable to others. I obsess over my own likability because I'm on the receiving end of all that commentary. And I'm, you know, it's kind of hypocritical how I'm like, oh my God, I I don't think I'm so funny. I don't think I'm so smart and so great. All these things you're telling me I think I am because these comments are wearing, you know, they wear you down. And meanwhile, it's like, if you're not careful, you can convince yourself to disappear because sometimes, sometimes it doesn't feel worth it to be, to have to do so much to just be simply liked. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a trap. 
Oh, it's a terrible trap. So this is pride. And this is the chapter, which is about what we do to women who dare. I mean, there are many components to this chapter, which I think are worth talking about. But this is about what we do to women who dare to be seen, who make themselves visible in any way, and who share their gifts with the world. And you'll see people trying to survive this by self-deprecation, minimizing, et cetera, humor, which is great. No problem there. However, you see it as like, I do it. I'll just get down in this defensive crouch so that you don't feel like you need to take me out at the knees. You don't need to put me back in my place. You don't need to lop off the tall poppy in the poppy field because anything you've thought about me that's negative, don't worry. I hold it against myself already. There's nothing you can say that will shock me. Mm-hmm. Um but it comes from this, like, how dare she, who does she think she is energy? And so it's, it's some of it is envy. And I would argue with anyone listening, if like to notice that in yourself, it's potent information, that, that instinct, because what I think we have, and we see it all over the world is like, a lot of women, and I put myself in this category, I'm still working through it, who are partially self-expressed or are not expressed at all. And we desperately need everyone to bring their gifts out mm-hmm. to the table, particularly at this moment in time. And so, but but we see the pattern recognition. And it, this is why Taylor Swift has an f- army. This is why the Swifties exist. Because, again, not conscious, but they recognize that there is a, a pattern for every visible woman. We celebrate her on the rise. We love the up-and-comer. She hits a certain point of relevancy or is becomes visible, and then we decide she's had enough or she's too much and she should be destroyed. And then that's what we do. We destroy her. And women understand this, that likability curve, um, inherently, intuitively. We are all sort of constantly conditioning ourselves to not break that likability code because we understand what's on the other side. And we can say like, oh, Taylor Swift or Lizzo or whatever's happening where there's just sort of this like outrage against Oprah being canceled this week. It's like, oh, my God, people. Um, But we can recognize that that's what's at play and say, oh, it's Oprah. Who cares? She's, you know, the most the biggest, most influential person in the world I'm a civilian, but we all pattern recognize them. This is what we pass on to each other. This is what we perceive as normal. This is what we, we're all, we all live this, mm-hmm. even if it's sort of at our own job. Um, and and part of it, it's like, oh, God, Kate. I mean, there's, I just did this workshop around wanting, and it was really powerful for a number of reasons, but you could feel in the room as we talked about how we were going to do this workshop, you could feel the anxiety rise. And this is a group of women who gather like once or twice a year. They don't, not all of them all the time, but there's some familiarity. They all have sort of a general, similar worldview, et cetera, love each other. But in, in this context, you could feel both the anxiety rise and you could feel the feelings of scarcity rise. Like if I say I want something and someone else wants it, who's going to get it? Like you could just feel that tension in the room. And people were sort of like, you could hear sort of, you knew that some people had podcast ideas, book ideas, et cetera. And you could just feel this sort of like, well, if she gets that, then I won't get it. Yep. 
it was it was palpable. And so the the what we had to do is everyone had to write down what they really really wanted, what they what, uh, wanting that was so humiliating, felt so prideful, so big that they barely could acknowledge it to themselves, much less like ever say it out loud. And some people had to really push because they started out like very small and you could tell that there was that condition hadn't been met. Then we had to go around the room and share them. Some people cried. And this is what was amazing. First of all, it was all so reasonable, so lovely. Like it was someone who wanted to like reimagine elder care someone who wanted to build a regenerative farm um, and write a book about the process, someone who wanted to do a children's book about spirituality. Um, Like it couldn't have been more varied, even amongst this group of women who have similar interests. Like there were barely anyone in the same lane, much less wanting the, the same thing. And, and then it was just like wild to watch people sort of be like, I want all of that for you. And what I want, I, I don't hear anything that sounds unreasonable. So can I like ha- hold that same space for myself? Mm-hmm. It was really big because when I think about where we are and I think about how difficult it is, and I own all of this in the book, like my own envy, my own sort of fear of pride. And I, I it's not, I'm not, sort of diagnosing other people. I'm saying like, this is in me too. But this instinct to, for women of like, not letting women get bigger and not being able to sort of stand behind them and recognize how um, much space that that actually creates for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Like, this is maybe a strange example, but I was working on a op-ed. I don't know if it will run or where it will run, but it's about the dominance of male podcasters and particularly sort of in very loosely health and wellness and the way that they have completely taken over mm-hmm. sort of the top of the charts and how podcasting is a rare, weird world where um, you can't, there's no algorithm. There's no discoverability, very little. Like you kind of have to know someone at Apple to get um, any editorial coverage, et cetera. You only can grow by appearing on other people's shows, pretty much, and or having a mass, being a celebrity, maybe that works, it doesn't always work, or having a big media platform. But it's not the sort of thing, it's not the sort of ecosystem where you can say, oh, the best content invariably finds its audience. Right. It's not Google, and it's not TikTok, and it's not Instagram. And so with these male podcasters, not to disparage their work, some of it's great, but they all, there's no scarcity. So they are all hosting each other, running each other, sort of you, you watch them all um, run shows. So they've all been on each other's shows, even if it's not sort of a direct content match. And they are just dominant. In a, and podcasting, as you know, it's like, most shows are sort of a graveyard, have very few listeners, and then you have these shows that just get a ton. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about like Huberman and Peter Atia and Sam Harris and all of the guys. And here's the thing. They don't interview women. So we're talking about like 10%, 11%, 13%. 
Um, which I think because we live in our sort of patriarchal culture, we hear that as completely normal, that of course men are experts and authorities on health. And typically when a woman is on, she's only talking about hormones or sex, but very rarely as sort of a general authority on health. Mm. So they all, I mean, the, the, the stats are staggering. And I just want to say that I think many of us have like, also taken in this myth that like men are somehow superior. Well, women have been outperforming um, men, boy, and girls have been outperforming boys in school for a century. Right now, there are more, it's like 53% of med school attendees are female. I think in the biomedical PhD programs, it's like 70% female. So it's not a dearth of talent or skill or competency. It's just the way that our culture validates men And it's also that these men support each other. Right. And meanwhile, when it comes to women, I mean, you're having me on. I'm deeply appreciative. But there's no, we're not organized in the same way. We don't sort of say, like, there's little sort of connections or tethers of, like, you to Nora McInerney or, like, there's there's definitely love amongst the women but there's no coordinated, coherent WhatsApp group. Right. There's no sisterhood. And in some ways, I sort of appreciate that we're not all like gaming the algorithm and like hacking our way. But then it's like, well, maybe we should. Because actually, if we all got on, t- on side with each other, and then we could balance what's happening with the men by just primarily interviewing women. Although I would really like to see balance. I'd like to see the men rise to the challenge and show some reverence for the wisdom of women and have a more diverse slate of guests. One person who's really good at that is Dan Harris. You know what's interesting about... Anyway, that was my TED Talk. Again! I, lo- I love your TED Talks. And you know, you're speaking my language. I, <laughs> what's so interesting is like, I've met so many incredible collaborative women through podcasting, but at the same time, I've experienced a lot of um, the scarcity vibe of feeling like there isn't a lot of cross-pollination because people don't want to share their audiences or coming on and then they won't feature it, won't tag you. Or um, I, I yes. actually have experienced a lot of weirdness where I th- it's almost like people think that if you expose them to another person's show, they'll stop listening to theirs. Yes. And I, and yeah, that kind of goes, I, and I don't even think people always consciously realize they're doing it, but podcasting is such a unique type of grind that few people understand I've been doing it for six years and like I have so much fear about it's hard to like ma- uh, maintain an audience, much less grow one, you know, and you can really get in your head about like people going somewhere else and causing that attrition if somebody's funnier or smarter or better than you. And I think that to your point about being in tune with that, like wanting, it makes you realize it's not about what it's about and you're really not going to lose anything materially from collaborating and um, no, look at these men. Right. Such a Jay good point. Shetty, Tim Ferriss, Dax, Peter Atiyah, uh, Rich Roll, uh, Huberman. Yeah. They're all, they run, uh, Lewis House, like they have figured it out. And you will watch them each run each, they've done each other's shows innumerable times. Yeah. You know? Um, and, 
it's all it is is an illustration of like the scarcity mentality that has us so stuck in fear and like I will not have enough and what I have will be taken and it is a finite pond. It is not a flowing river. Um, these men are just disproving that on the daily as they just climb and climb and climb and crowd out other voices and platform men. Right. So I, we could hope that they achieve balance and or are called to accountability in the way that women are always, particularly white women, called to be accountable in who we're platforming and, and rightly so. But Or we can say, all right, let's just not wait around. Let's build our own movement and show each other and the world that we don't need to fear scarcity, that there's room for all of us. Right. The other thing I wanted to ask you about related to envy, it's like, you know, there's the recognition of envy and not, and you know, try not to moralize it and kind of seeing it as you're wanting. But I think the flip, the, the hard part about wanting is that nagging feeling that I don't even know where it comes from, but like that I always have to be grateful. Mm. Like gratitude is something that really gets in the way of me being in tune with my own wanting. And I don't even know where that's from, but it's like, it's, yeah, it's bad to want for more, should be grateful for what I have. And, you know, I always feel the need to qualify my gratitude anytime I express desire. Yes, a thousand percent. Um, And I think, again, it comes back to this, like, Oh, and it's complicated. Like I, one of the one of the things I try to do is tease out the differences between humility and modesty, mm-hmm. for example. Like humility means soil, hummus, soil to be rooted. Um, and yes, like humility is a great quality. It's very different than sort of the profession projection of modesty, which again, with like modesty culture has other associations, particularly for women. Um, but humility is to sort of stay rooted to who you are. Um, and I think it's like, I don't know if this answers your question, but another part of this chapter on pride is something that has driven me crazy for a long time that I write about that, and Adam Grant just did a an op-ed about this too, where it's like, thanks, Adam. But yes, I think women already know this, which is he wrote about weak language and why it's like a mechanism for um, not survival, but and in, and in, in, for durability in a workplace. And you know the ways that it's like I just wanted to point out, or I'm sure you've already thought of this, et cetera. And so one of the things that drives me crazy culturally is how we um, criticize or make it another thing for women to do to like. Be more confident. Ugh, yeah. Ask for what you're worth. Yeah. Um, again, it kind of comes back to this, like, grat- this, like, be grateful. Um, be grateful and advocate for yourself. <laughs> right. This sort of the double double sword. But be more direct in your language. And then as a woman, I don't know many women. And, and then you hear it often swept up, too, in imposter syndrome, which I don't really even understand exactly what imposter syndrome is, except that theoretically we all have it, all have our moments of, of doubt and insecurity. But with this idea of like what we need to portray, it's all, this is all about cultural survival for us. Right. I don't know, I do not believe that women are not confident and that we aren't in that room saying, oh, you idiot. Like, 
oh, stop talking, Brad. You know, it's just that we know how to manage culture. Right. Because we've had to for decades. We know how to get our needs met in a world that's not built for us. So all that caveating, all that weak language, it's not because I just think you probably already thought of this, Kate. I just wanted to raise one question, which I'm sure you're way ahead of. It's that we know how to, we know that going out and saying it directly, that we'll be, we'll be criticized and condemned for that. Not by just men, but other women too. Right. So that's one of the things that drives me crazy is the way that then the cultural instinct is to say, this is all your fault. It's like, no, stop. We just know, to your point, like maintaining your likability or being constantly professing your gratitude. Gratitude's great. I'm not saying that I'm very grateful for everything that I have, but it's the performance of it that's required right, to make us less, to make us less of an affront, I think. Right. And I find it offensive when like, yeah, commentary, commentary like that suggests the solution to the problem is direct, is to act in direct opposition to it or to uphold the posture of how a man would speak to like constantly be correcting ourselves to o- overcorrect for a system that's like very much still in place. And that sort of language is because it's still in existence and we're forever navigating the terms like it. It, it just uh, yeah, I, I think it's insane that that even piece would be out recently. I feel like that was very much kind of like lean in girl boss era where it was like, if you want to make more money, you need to be a better negotiator. It's not because of the wage gap. <laughs> it's your fault. Yes. <laughs> and I feel like as no. we've evolved, as uh, I think many of us that really abided by that era, now I'm just like, yeah, I think the biggest resistance is to let myself exist. And I exist with my likes and my justs and my butt and my <laughs> basically and all the other filler words people hate and stopped cutting them out of my podcast even because I'm just like, the 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 solution doesn't feel like policing ourselves further for reacting to a system we are not responsible for. Exactly. But I think the more awareness we bring to it, the more we can actually move and evolve it. And part of it, and I think what I'm, my book is not anti-man. I think men are in many ways greater victims of the patriarchy than women. They don't seem to be because of the way that our patriarchal culture values power um, as the preeminent thing. And I don't know that it is. Um, I think we're in a little bit of a topsy-turvy world. But so it's not a man-hating, it's all their fault. This is instead about sort of what we individually can own and the way that we are participating in and upholding this and then inhibiting each other from full expansion with the hope that the more we can become aware of it, the more we can interrupt this programming with each other, the more we can address all of these bad feelings quote unquote, bad feelings that we've suppressed in our bodies, that we are have a bad unconforming body, that we're deviant, that our sexuality is gross and base, all of it, that money is base. The more that we can actually start to let that come up so we can process it, and the more we can find ways to support each other, the I think we, we could actually reach equity and parity quite quickly. I don't think that it's necessarily men quote unquote, men as a block who are inhibiting our ability to achieve that. I think we have it, we we can solve this in ourselves and with each other. I really believe that. I Yeah, I mean, I and I think that the way 
your book goes into the historical background of the patriarchy and kind of explains how uh, it sustains a lot of these beliefs. It's just it's helpful to see it as like a, a longstanding social construct that like no one person in current existence is responsible for. It's really, really fucking complicated. It's super complicated. And then you get into like the way that there's gender, there's class, there's race, and you start to see um, the the sort of the create the, within our patriarchy where power is the ultimate veneration state. And then you start to understand how the Venn diagrams of power sort of put us, one, separate us from each other, and then two, create these striations of power um, that, and my book doesn't go into this at great length, but there are many books that do. But it's sort of, I think, at least for me, rearranged or articulated where my responsibility is for other women um, including women of color, and sort of how we're, we're sort of force ranked in this culture. And as a white woman, it is their job to apply pressure to me, to us, and it's our job to apply pressure to each other and to white men. And pressure is like, it can be a gentle, loving force, but it is sort of like a need to direct attention towards let's like this needs to shift, this needs to evolve, this needs we or we just need to be conscious, more conscious of these relationships. Um ultimately. Absolutely. And and I think that's part of what I appreciated about your book because A, it's not like self-help in that, like we need to incur more labor and self-improvement to be like worthy. It's more like contextualizing and understanding our own habits and patterns just helps us separate from them, not moralize them, not attach them to our value in a way that I think is very liberating that didn't require a lot of like cognitive labor. It just was very enlightening, which I loved about it. And also, you know, per the self-help, it can often be like so individualistic. It's like, what is this really doing for the collective if we're just hyper-focused on our own like optimization and self-improvement? And I think when you recognize the bigger system at play, you kind of understand that, yeah, there's really no, this will never get better if you're only focused on yourself and your own circumstances. Um, Yes. And And I think that there's hopefully a lot of relief because I think that if we can start to understand the way goodness, quote unquote, is wielded as a weapon against us and how vulnerable we are to the assignations of badness, that we can create more durability to attend to inequity and and social justice issues where I can show up and not be so fragile around not being a perfect, quote unquote, perfectly or perfectly good ally. And just instead of saying, oh, I'm going to go away, I feel attacked, like my goodness is under um, siege and I'm a terrible person, I'm bad. If we start to process these feelings of badness and imperfection, because to be whole means being perfect and imperfect, that that stops being our Achilles heel. Mm. And we can actually endure in these hard conversations, endure in these hard times, and be present with each other and with ourselves and say, I I don't, I didn't know. I will, I'm learning. I'm going to do better. I am here. You know, I want to be present. I want to stay in the fire. 
And, um, and I think that the more we're conscious of how fragile this idea of goodness is, the more we can hopefully put it aside and let ourselves be our full selves. Badness, goodness, all of it. We are both of those things. I love that. That's the perfect note to end on. I had no idea I held you for more than 15 minutes past our time. I'm so sorry. Oh, I don't care. This was so fun. We could talk to you forever. I'm not sure why I stopped recording there, but please check out Elise's book on our best behavior. And you can find her on Instagram at Elise, L-O-E-H-N-E-N. And I hope you enjoyed that interview. It was a great heart to heart. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. And she was so nice to come on. And yeah, I hope you guys will check it out. Let me know what you think. Have a great weekend. I'm across the pond. We'll be back soon. Uh, next week, we have another fun episode. So please come back. If you want to rate and review five stars, share with a friend who you want to be on your worst behavior with. Um, I would appreciate that so much, but no pressure. You can find me on Instagram at Kate Kennedy at be there in five. And until next time, thank you for the privilege of your time. As always, let me know your thoughts and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five, I swear.